The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Gabriella Von Ray. Gabriella is author of All My Might. Welcome to the show, Gabriella. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you for inviting me. Well, Gabriella, as I understand it, your book, With All My Might, is a deeply personal memoir about being an outcast in an adopted family in a foreign country. And apparently you were tormented because of being physically different from your peers. So we'll start out with that. I assume that that's the motivation for writing the book. Yes, it is, because one of the things that I learned as an adult, the funny part is you think your life is your life, right? And then as you grow up, you start, in any case, in my case, I started meeting people and I thought, our stories are very different, but the emotions are the same. So I was meeting people that were not adopted, but did feel like an outcast. So uh, in, in my journey as an adult, I saw so many people that were unfortunately an outcast, sometimes by their family, sometimes by work, sometimes just because you feel that you don't fit in. And so I said, I'm going to write a book about my story, of course, but about that the emotions in my book are definitely not, um, um, are definitely universal. And so I I learned very quickly that I wasn't the only one that stood out. But when I was uh, a little girl, I really thought that there was no one in the world that looked like me because I was adopted by a Dutch couple from Pakistan, and so I was the only one with a brown skin. So you uh, you were adopted by a Dutch couple, a white yeah. couple, and you're a little girl with brown skin. Is that, the, and that's physically what separated you, or what you felt physically separated you from it, your... It physically separated me. Everyone back then, in 1960s, everyone was in Holland, blonde with blue eyes. And one other thing that was very different from the 60s is no one had heard of the the word adoption. So I had a teacher who said to me, I don't know what that is. You must be lying and put me outside of the classroom. So I learned very, very quickly that although I wasn't lying, that the whole scope of adoption and saying that someone is your cousin that looks white with blue eyes and blonde hair that a teacher couldn't grasp that. Well, you were, me, did you say you were tormented? Very strange when, when, yeah, but, Gabriella, you were tormented, uh, and tormented is a pretty strong word. So yes. how did your, you know, your family adopted you? Obviously, they wanted you. They, uh, 
adopted you and you were from Pakistan. So how did that all play out? I mean, they adopted you. They wanted you. I assume they loved you. How did they, did they help you to? Well, they couldn't help me. A, because I didn't talk. Um, I don't think that when you're adopted, in any case, this is what I write in the book, is when you're adopted, where to go with your, your problems? Where can you go? with the problem of skin color when nobody can relate to that. So I didn't feel that going home to my parents, I could do that. Now, I did have a very good relationship with my father, so I did tell him that I was bullied at school, but I only told him this once. And he said, stand up, tell them you're Dutch and that you're not a foreigner. And the advice was probably really sweet, and I did take his advice. It just didn't help. And I learned that the torment was more about them being fearful. And once I caught on on that part, I kind of fixed my problem right there and then. When you say you fixed your problem, because how old were you when you fixed your problem? We're talking about going through elementary school, uh, middle school, high school, uh, at what point were you able to say, aha, I see it's more of their problem being afraid of me? Because I, I don't think most kids have the insight. And, of course, we're going to bring this all up to the present day because this fits into this whole issue yeah. of bullying, obviously, and, and what to do about it. But in your personal story, you know, give us kind of a timeline for that. Because your father's I, advice... I was, I was three and a half when I came to that conclusion. And I only came to the inclusion, uh, conclusion because they kept pushing me out. I was a very gutsy personality, and I wanted to play. That's all I wanted. And these kids kept asking me questions uh, about Pakistan, about my birth mother. Was I abandoned? What, what did it mean to be adopted? And I told only the things that I thought were true, right? <laughs> I didn't know anything about my birth mother. And so... And so what I learned is that they wouldn't play with me, and they really wouldn't. They, they just wouldn't go there. Until one day, an epiphany, I just said, they're scared. I, they're, they're, they're scared of me. It can't be any other way. And so the next time that they shouted names at me, I lifted up my shirt, and I took the hand of the boy, and I put it on my stomach. And I said, we are the same. I have no idea where it came from. I just know I did that. And the moment I did that, every single child in my classroom wanted to touch my stomach, and it was over. The, 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 I still got bullied for many other things, but the skin color part was over. And so the moment that that left my vicinity, I felt I could breathe again, and then the next hurdle, and the next hurdle, and there was always a hurdle. And what most people don't know, and they read that in my book, of course, is my parents were diplomats. So this problem was continuous because they moved to a new country uh, sometimes every two years and mostly every four years. So I went through this each time that we moved to another country, to another school. But it got more and more difficult because the children got older and I couldn't ask them just to touch me and then life would be okay. What kind of bullying was it? Because I, I was discussing bullying with someone the other day and some of the, the obviously, I don't want to get into this with you, but the bullying today seems to be exacerbated for a lot of reasons, uh, more so yes. than, say, in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s. 
Um, and I know growing up for me, I, we never really had the, and probably I'm in a similar age group as you, but bullying was took on, I think, more of, of, of ignoring somebody, I mean, at school, like who, who maybe, who if you felt that they were a person with disabilities or whatever it was. If you're a kid, not that it was this kind of overt kind of bullying, but it was more like you just ignored them. They were out, they were left out of, of you know, being invited to parties or doing stuff on the playground, that kind of stuff. Uh, so I wondered what the quality that, of the... That was- that was typically my bullying, but the quality was, I wouldn't felt it as a torment, and i tell you why. There, there was this aspect of being truly the only one. So, if you want to, you can compare it with a disability, with children never having seen anyone like me. And so, it wasn't as if they only ignored me. They went at me, nonstop, name-calling. And every, it seemed like every single child didn't think anything of it, but thought it was hilarious to go at me about my color, about adoption, about not having a mother. And, of course, it was only accentuated and amplified with my mother picking me up at school. And once I was allowed to take the school bus, I told my mother, please, please, please don't come and pick me up. Because I really felt that if she wasn't there, the children might actually forget where I came from, and there was a reminder, a constant reminder at the school gates when they saw a tall, blonde mother picking up this little girl, and so when she wasn't there, I saw life was a little bit easier for me, and so I almost ignored that I was adopted, (laughs) because if I could ignore that, then, and if I could make the children see my side, then, hey, it is so let's just play. And that made a big impact on me and it was very empowering to know that the children were scared. And that is one of the things that I do today is empower them with that knowledge. I think bullying has taken on, and I want to get into this because it has taken on kind of a different face, uh, but one of the things that you talk about or you mentioned in your book that victims and bullies have many things in common, and I think that's true. So let's talk about that. I mean, you obviously, as a kid, your parents were diplomats, you're very, you're bright, you have a lot of um, sort of positives on your side, and and emotionally, so that you were able to stand up against the bulliers, but not all kids have those skills, or that, you know, they they don't have those kinds, you know, they're the average kid, and so they can't do what you did, so let's no, absolutely. So that's one of the one of the things that I write about in my second children's book. My second book, which is a children's book, is coming out in a month. I really talk about we take the advice of our parents because we think they're smart. When we're a child, we think they're smart. They must know better, and we make that one ditch effort to our parents. But once if our parents, without knowing it, give us the wrong advice, for example, beat up that kid, okay? Beat, beat them up, stand up for yourself. I hear so many kids tell me that their parents tell them that. That's not helpful because now the child doesn't even dare to go to school but doesn't dare to come back home because now it has you telling them, did you beat up the kid? And if you say no, your parents are disappointed in you. So 
some of these advices are not useful. I tell to parents often, this is not useful for your child. It is not the way it was in your day. Because if you beat up a kid, that kid might be waiting for you with a knife and a whole game. At the so end what do of we the do day. today? Because it is different. And I know that uh, yes. I also want to mention that you are actually, you know, what we're talking about on the show, you're going around to, what, 50 different schools or 50 different cities touring and conducting seminars about national kindness campaign. You're going to wind up in the White House with the president, maybe giving him some advice, I guess, too. But yeah. uh, <laughs> I feel that, that there are two things. The media and everyone amplifies the word bully. So we have a sort of mindset, oh, the bully is bad, it's like a stigma. So no parent out there wants to have a child that is the bully. So it's not discussed. So whereas I, when I come in schools, I don't talk about bully, victim. They're mirror images of each other. I do tell them that. But I talk about kindness, about dropping the ball, about it taking one minute to help a classmate. It takes one second to stand up for them, and it takes one minute to help them turn around and be positive about them. Who are usually the victims of bullying today? I think the victims of bullying today, unfortunately, are still those kids that stand out. They're still those multicultural kids that are half Japanese, half American. They're still the disabled kids, unfortunately. They're still... The, the kids that are bullied are still the same ones that were bullied years ago. And I have a theory about that. My theory is that you are bullied because nobody taught you that one simple thing that I taught myself. But I taught myself this very, very late in life. Be proud of your uniqueness. And the moment you are proud of the uniqueness, you embrace it automatically. And then nobody... Nobody will ever tease you about it again. What about the gay students? I think that's a whole new group of kids who are being bullied for being gay, for being a lesbian, for being transgendered. I I mean, those kids weren't even out in in the day, you know, when you were younger. But so that's another group that's getting bullied. Um, But I I don't believe that that's totally true. I do believe we have the word out there, and I can't say it on, on radio, but there was a word out there in my day that we said all the time. And I remember that it made you look like a wimp or weak. And the, the, the group that, that you're talking about gets, I know many, many boys that are between six, seven, and eight that get called gay all the time. They have no idea what their sexual orientation is yet. They are not gay. They are not lesbian. They're just called that. So I think that we need to educate the children, which I hope is a part of what I'm doing, that they are not involved in any sexual activity and should not be called gay or lesbian, ever. It is an insult. It is not nice to say that we don't call other kids Uh straight. So I try to explain that because at seven, you don't know any better. But what is very sad, Catherine, is that if you're called gay at that young, young age, a lot of these boys cannot handle that, and they think it's an insult, so they'll commit suicide. And and that's why I'm out there. Well, I'm not talking because, about those students. I mean, uh, sort of, uh, are you, but as you're saying, it's a, it, it kind of implies that if you are a gay or a lesbian, that that's a bad thing? No, it's implied, yes. 
somehow these kids on all age brackets have found out that this is an insult. Well, I, 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 I mean, that's, a, that's a whole other issue. I would have to, I think, why is it an insult? Why is it an insult to be gay? Why is it an insult to be, have a, uh, you know, to be in a wheelchair? Why is it an insult to uh, have another dark skin? I mean, that's, isn't that what but you're I, really trying to get at? I, I think it's because when the victim, and I can only talk about the victim at this moment because that's how I felt, we feel inferior. So we think it's an insult, but it's not necessarily an insult. So I'm empowering the children by saying, hey, when they call you gay or lesbian or any of these things, you know it's not true. If you know it is true, then stand up for yourself. But if it's a seven-year-old, it's, of course, very difficult (laughs) for him to know if that's true or not because he does not know what it is. He does not know what sex is. He does not know any of these things. But the unfortunate part, this is starting earlier and earlier. Maybe in our days, we were called that in high school. And in high school, we had an inkling, maybe, of what was what this all was about. I guess what I'm trying to say, don't we have to dig a little, and kind of going back to my point, like, first really discussing why it's considered an insult. Why is it an insult if you are... What is well? What, I guess I guess we're not a, a melting pot where we have accepted gays and lesbians as much as we believe we have. Well, they call people. Well, let's. I think I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe not necessarily only with the gay and lesbian community, but no, let's take. Not. Well, let's take about what they call kids perhaps who are um, who have a lower IQ. They will call them retards. Now, that's the same, kids will do that in terms of bullying. Yep. Don't you have to get to the point where you help kids to understand that all of those, that, that, that being somebody who may be, have some kind of a disability, that that's not a, nece- that's not a negative thing? I don't know if I'm making my point. But-, but, but that's what I'm trying to tell the children. Embrace your uniqueness, whether you're a slow learner, whether you have Asperger's, whether you are gay, whether you are any of the things that children call you, you yourself need to decide if you are those things or if you are not. But if you are brown, and I'm going to just take that example because it's an easy example for me to take, if you are brown, if you are fat, if you are short, and I go against a bully and I say, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, all I get is that the group is laughing even more at me, right? So teaching ownership of something that is true, that you are being bullied at. I, for example, when I deal with a child that is fat, I, of course, do not, do not ever call anyone by any name. I always ask the child, why are you bullied? If the child says, well, they call me fat, they call me short, then I say, is this true for you? Do you feel that any of these things are true? And if I see a little head bop up and down, I say, but be proud of it. Why not? Why not go up to the bully and say, I'm fluffy and I'm short, but I think I can play with the ball too. Give me a, give me a chance. And children, when I say that open up, really open up, and say, I never thought of that. 
I keep saying I'm not fat. And I said, I kept doing the same. It doesn't work. See, so that's what I try to teach with the ownership of your uniqueness. If you are slow, then you are. That's okay. You, you need to embrace it. You, the child, does not need to think it's an insult. You need to turn the tables around for yourself. And the moment the child is not scared of that, of, of, of their uniqueness, they step it up a notch. And how, do they the step it up today, a notch how do the children today, that, that's sort of like a one-on-one thing, or that's like when you're actually confronting the person, the person who's being bullied and the bullier. What do you do about this online bullying, which is constant? Not only do you... Are, Supper, or you know, you have the the conflict you, or the confrontation yep. in the school, but then you go home and you're online, and then it's also constant. And parents don't necessarily know that their kids are being exposed to this constant bullying online. Um, so, how do you well, what do you how do we combat advice, that? The first advice for any of your listeners is please get involved in the social media of your children. Don't think that. You gave them a cell phone in the hand that it's not a full-fledged computer. I have a lot of parents that don't understand that. It is a computer in their hands. And those children do know one thing that I must say I didn't know when I was a young child. They think it is fun. They think you're popular if you humiliate someone else. And they found out that doing it through social media, they have a much bigger audience, so they feel way cooler. And that's really the truth. It do they feel cooler or do they feel the powerful? Do you, uh, does it empower them? There's a false sense of empowerment. They feel very powerful. They feel powerful because they come back at school the next day and people go, hey, high five, I saw your post. Oh, my goodness, you had a thousand likes. Right? It's very yeah, empowering what? for the person. What about the kids who don't bully? What about the kid who stands up for the kid who's being bullied? What about the kid who's out there and doesn't need any prodding or doesn't need the teacher to tell them to do that, but there's something in terms of the way they've been brought up that they will stand there and say, protect their friend or protect... Well, I call that becoming an active witness. So I, I ask the children to do what you just said, stand up for each other because you would want someone to stand up for you too. So when you can't stand up for yourself, you see it if the bullying is in the schoolyard, then obviously if you walk away as a bystander and you take all your friends with you, the bully loses its momentum and power. But if it's on social media, it's a little bit more difficult. So I've told them, don't share. There's nobody forcing you uh, to click on that share button. Nobody. There's nobody forcing you to write an even nastier comment. Nobody. So I say on social media, and this is what I'm trying to get people to do, is to say, this is not nice. We at our school do not stand for this. This is not nice. We want a safe campus. And then to name their school, and all the schools have something implemented so it might be zero tolerance, it might be uh, stop bullying, they have a word in different schools of different programs. So I what about, I'm trying to program. look at it or perhaps take it from the positive, what, and I'm kind of going back to my last, my last question, but do you ever identify those kids, and parents actually, who have produced children, who are able to do 
who are able to stand up for other kids on their own without having yes. even guidance from, from you or from the teachers or the principal, but somehow there's something inherent in them and their families that they do it automatically. And would you highlight them? You, you, you know what I I'm, do highlight them, but I also ask them to help the other ones that don't pull away, so the bystander. But one of the things that I'm noticing on, on a daily basis is that those kids that stand up for other kids want to do that less and less because the school often punishes them. So there is something warped going on where when you stand up for someone else, you're the bully all of a sudden because often these kids stand up for another by saying a word back that they shouldn't have, and then they end up in the principal's office. And so a lot of these children say to me, I want to be kind, Gabriella. I like your kindness thing. But when I do, I'm always in the principal's office because apparently I didn't do it right. And then I get blamed. Well, then what do we have to do? We have to, then you have to, and maybe you're doing this, but you're conducting these national kindness campaign and these seminars across the country. Does that involve training the principals, the teachers, the, the school administrators? Uh, so that I'm they... working right now on a manual that goes with my children's books so that school districts can buy that and can buy the DVD with the exercises that they could do. And the whole school district can buy it problem is always the same thing is the school really does like to ignore the bullying because there are so many cases and they have no means of handling it. I'm, I'm not saying that that's good or bad. I'm just saying that that is truly where we're at. They are overwhelmed and nobody really knows what is happening on the cyber part of, of the bullying. So the teacher can only see what it can see. And it tries to diffuse, um, 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 not, I think it's really hard to be a teacher today, too. And last but not least, honestly, the parents need to get involved much more. And it's not always only the bully fault. We need to look at both sides. And the moment parents are willing to do that, I think we can solve it. Yeah, and I think uh, we have a couple minutes left, but just to comment on that, we're asking parents to become more involved when we have both parents working who somehow are less involved probably or have less time to be involved, uh, who just kind of get by on the activities of daily living with themselves and with their kids. So there's a lot of pressure. Um, you know, you have a couple of statistics in your book, and uh, sev- and I want to read those because they really are startling. You say that 71% of students report incidents, 71% of students report incidents of bullying being a problem at their school, and yeah. more than 50% of adolescents and teens have been bullied online, which is what we've been talking about. Uh, which is really scary stuff. So obviously your work is very important. Um, you mentioned that you're, besides With All My Might, which is the book we've been discussing, but you're coming out yep. with another book called Think and Grow. No, what, what's the next book? It's, um, it's, it's called I Can Find My Might. I Can Find My Might. It's to teach children where their own might is and how they can, with kindness, actually fix the problem and without reacting to every other person that they meet. 
can you give us because a website so we can go? We have to say goodbye. It's been great talking to you, Gabriella, but I also want you to uh, give us a website that we can go to uh, and listeners the can go to. The website is GabriellaVonRay.com. Amazon is for the book. And if you can't type Gabriella Von Ray, which I can understand, <laughs> then hashtag pick up the ball and you will find an entire page of websites, YouTubes, and the book itself. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Gabriella Von Ray and her book is with author of With All My Might. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And we're going to take a short break right now. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me next is author and international expert on money and entrepreneurship, Sharon Lecter. Her new book is Think and Grow Rich for Women. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thank you, Catherine. I'm delighted to be with you, and thank you for the opportunity. Well, think and grow rich for women. Okay. Um, it's a great title. Uh, the question is, how, when we read your book, how is this going to help us women to do just that? Well, women are at a tipping point right now, Catherine, and we're getting more and more involved in um, business and economics, and I really want to change the dialogue from complaining about what still needs to happen to celebrating the accomplishments that we have made as women. And the book, the original Think and Grow Rich book, was released and written by Napoleon Hill back in 1937. And it still is as appropriate today as it was back then. But, Sharon, that was Think and Grow Rich for men and women. That wasn't just for women. No, that one was for everybody. Everybody. But but it was very male-focused because all the titans of business in the 20s and 30s were men. And so I read it when I was 19, which was many, many years ago. (laughs) 
and um, I really resisted writing a book specifically for women until I realized that even though the steps to success are the same, men and women approach those very differently. How, in your book, you have gathered together a whole collection of wisdom from women who have been very successful. Oprah Winfrey, I won't go through the whole list, obviously, but uh, Catherine Graham, uh, Mother Teresa. So what do those women have in common? I mean, they're taking those same steps, as you say, that men did in the, in the 30s. Um, but there's something different in terms of the process, in, in terms of how they became successful. Absolutely, and one of the biggest issues is that we each have the opportunity to define what success means to us. Certainly, you know, Mother Teresa, when you think about success in the financial arena, she was one of the most successful people of our, of our times, and yet her success was not defined in money at all. It was in really making an impact, and that's the subtitle of the book, is Using Your Power to Create Success and Significance. And, I, and the commonality of women in the book is the fact that they all had that desire. They had that burning desire, which is the first chapter. They had faith in themselves. They had faith in what they were doing. And they continue focusing on their mission and their goal. And they were not deterred by um, naysayers or bad environments. They continued working towards that goal. And as a woman reading the book, you'll find one story that just doesn't relate to you at all. But the next one's going to hit home. I have over 300 women that I've included in the book, and I looked at each one of Hill's principles. In fact, the chapter format is the same in this book as the original Think and Grow Rich. So I start each chapter with a a synopsis of his principle, and then I incorporate stories of successful women that employed that principle in their own lives. Then I talk about how I employed it in my life, and then I have what I call sisterhood mastermind, the concept of the mastermind, having a group of people to come together, to work together, think tank, actually was coined by Napoleon Hill. He also is the one who came up with pay yourself first. Sharon, I want to get but you just mentioned your own story and how the principles apply to you, and I'm always interested in, obviously, uh, the author's story, which is you. So, and, you, and I don't think I mentioned in the beginning of the show, but you are a CPA. Uh, CPA, maybe not so much today, but kind of probably within the last, what would you say, 15 years, there weren't a lot of female women CPAs necessarily or successful ones. But So what is your story? How did well, you become successful? Well, thank you. I was the first generation to go to college. My parents' dream was that their kids would go to college and, and get a good career job and go up through the ranks. And I followed that program until I was about 26, and I was working myself silly. I was only the fifth woman ever hired by my accounting firm in the southeast United States. So, yes, I was at the forefront. But um, I realized if I'm working this hard, I should be working this hard for myself. And so I really became an entrepreneur when I was 26, and I've never looked back. But I think it's important also to understand that at that time, yes, we, we had to act like men. We had to work harder than men. And yet today we have more opportunity because the whole world of business has changed from one of competition and, um, and dog-eat-dog to one of collaboration and strategic alliances and collaboration women excel in. But as I started my career in, um, in entrepreneurship, my, I got married, I had children, my kids didn't like to read, so your listeners may be familiar with talking books, children's books that have sound strips. I helped build that industry around the world. And then... 
um, my oldest son went off to college and got into credit card debt, and that was in 1992. And that's really when I dedicated the rest of my professional career to financial education and financial literacy because I had taught him about money. I had taught him the things that my parents had taught me, but there weren't credit cards. And he was with me when I used my credit cards. He just wasn't with me when I paid them off each month. And so it was a real eye-opening experience for me that my son, who I taught about money, was was able to get influenced in such a dramatic way. And so I've been working steadfastly, and um, I was honored to be asked by President Bush to be on the first President's Advisory Council for Financial Literacy. I served both President Bush and Obama. And then I also um, had the honor to come full circle and represent my profession as a CPA, as a national spokesperson for financial literacy. So I've had quite, I've been honored and had a very grateful for the opportunities that I've had. But my I mean, passion... Ob- you have an obviously extremely impressive bio. So what would you share with other women, perhaps? And I always kind of want to, you know, you're very talented, you're very driven, motivated, you... Obviously, you have a lot of insight. You use your own family to get ahead in a positive way and to help your son. Uh, but what's, what would be, do you think, is like the biggest challenge for the average woman? Just, you know, all of us who perhaps are, don't have the same skills that you do in terms of, well, first of all, your degree, but just in terms of your skill as a, a money manager. Well, I think the first step is one of the greatest uh, issues that I see in women is a lack of confidence. And so in the book, my last chapter, which is not in the original Think and Grow Rich, is called One Big Life, because so many women um, have this, they strive to have this work-life balance. And by doing that, you are constantly feeling guilty, because today you might have spent too much time at the office or too much time with the kids. So I want people to stop that, because that's, you're just carrying guilt and worry, which is not good for you physically and certainly not emotionally. And... We each have, every morning we have the opportunity to change our day and do whatever we want. And so I want people to look at the fact that you've got 24 hours, seven days a week, and don't waste any of it worrying about what's happened in the past. Use every minute to, to really design the future that you want. And, and there are a lot of women, there's, it's never been easier to So how do you do that? How do you actually do that? I mean, as you're, you wake up in the morning and you're not going to be concerned about, I spend five hours with the kids and five hours at work and yesterday I spent six and that was too many and now I feel guilty so I have to kind of change the balance. You're saying don't do that. But you wake up in the morning and it sounds really nice what you're saying and sounds somewhat doable, but in real life situations, how does that become doable? You know, like give us an example. Well, I will use my uh, an example that was uh, really impactful for me because um, I was I speak from experience. I consider myself a champion warrior and a champion guilt. <laughs> um, growing up in the Southern Baptist Church, I learned to be guilty about a lot of things, but um, I really found the definition of the word worry um, a few years ago, and it was to pray for what you do not want. And I repeat that, to worry is to pray for what you do not want. And just by learning that definition, when I find myself feeling guilty or or worried about something, I stop and I think about that definition and I reframe what's going on in my brain from not thinking about what I don't want to have happen, but start focusing on what I do want to have happen. 
And just by changing that negative thought pattern to one that's more positive, you can incredibly change what's happening in your life. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you can switch the dime um, immediately. But it's so important to start focusing on the productivity because um, I use an analogy. You know, you're 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 in the driver's seat. You have the steering wheel and you have the gas pedal. And your car has a huge windshield that you can go and do anything you want. And the rearview mirror is very small. And that's because we're supposed to learn from our past, but not have it define us and not have it hold us back. All of us, every one of us has made mistakes. And those mistakes are opportunities to learn so that we don't repeat those mistakes. And we just need to focus on what we want and whether you are on welfare, a single mom, what we need to understand is we don't have to do it alone. Look for a group of girlfriends. Look for a group that supports you and work together to create value in your life. I think it's very difficult, maybe for people in general, but I think for women, and and you talk about this in the book, is to really not... um, When you're looking in the rearview mirror also, we tend to look at all the... The, the bad stuff that happens, uh, rather than, as you say, celebrating our past accomplishments and kind of bringing those forward. Like, look what you've done and look where you can go. It doesn't necessarily have to be looking back and say, looking back in a negative way. It can be, it can be positive if we'll give ourselves credit for what we do. And for some women, I, I, I think for some reason, women don't do that. We really, that lack of confidence that we have in ourselves and our skills and our abilities still persists, even with younger women, even with this, the, the millennials or the Gen Xs. Well, and, and you're right, but I think we can also look at the fact that there has been progress made. And so, for instance, um, you, we've heard of the 77-cent wage gap between when, women and men, and of course you hear that all the time as a negative, and does it need to change? Of course it does, but if you actually look at the stats, younger women are at 92, 93 cents per dollar. So there has been progress, and that's the whole, my whole purpose behind Thinking Rich for Women is to change the dialogue from negative to positive. Um, there's a lot of complaints that we need more women CEOs in Fortune 500 companies, and of course we do. We have 24 today. However, we only had two in the year 2000, and so I want us to start celebrating the positive instead of focusing on what still needs to be done. And by doing that, exactly what you just recommended, if you think about what you're grateful for, there's always somebody that's prettier, richer, slimmer than you. And so we we are in a society that we have fear based on fear of criticism, and that's something that we really need to look at. And we can do that as a, as a team with our girlfriends, people that support us. And it's so important I talk about the fact that, yes, one of our problems is a lack of self-confidence. However, we are tigresses when it comes to supporting our friends. And so let's use that strength to support each other until we can grow that self-confidence to get us to where we get up every morning ready to conquer the world. Sharon, who are your biggest female supporters? Um, you know, people can look at you and say, well, you've made it, you've done it, you, you're, you've, you've reached the pinnacle um, of success, and you continue to do that, but do you still need your supports, like from other women, in the same way, you know, as you've been describing, that, you know, we need a team? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it can get very lonely when you're, um, when you're running a company for women business owners. I belong to a group called Women Presence Organization. I've been part of that for 15 years, and some of my closest friends are in that group with me. I, I always look for the, one of the greatest things I'm grateful for every night is the girlfriends in my life because they help you get through the tough times, and they're there to celebrate your wins. Um, there are all kinds of incredible women's organizations. NAVA, which is the National Association of Women Business Owners. Um, there's, you know, just even having a, a, a group of girlfriends that meet on a regular basis to just share what's happening and and not be isolated. So much happens when we are when we have a, a, a bump in the road in our life and we get fearful, we tend to isolate ourselves. And that's what I'm hoping, that we can wake up and say, no, you're not alone. There's so many of us who have been through dramatic problems. And yes, you know, I thank you for the compliment. I, you know, I've had a blessed life, but there have been times in my life that I've been very, very sad and very distressed. I lost one of my children a year and a half ago. And if it weren't for the women around me that were holding my head up and keeping my head above the water, I don't know what happened. And so don't go through life alone. Look for those people that can they can celebrate you and that you can support them and you'll be able to conquer that lack of self-confidence. Yeah. I think that obviously well, you, you suffered, I mean, the, one of the worst tragedies that can happen to a, a mother and have gotten through it, as you say, with your the support of, of your women, of the women who have surrounded you. Um, why do you think women do isolate themselves and, and haven't traditionally been willing to kind of in, embrace what you're saying, um, embrace other women to help them along the way? Well, and of course, I always get in trouble when I generalize, but I think women typically put themselves last on the list. They want to make sure they're the best wife, the best mother, the best employee, and they tend to not take care of themselves because they run out of day before, before they run out of the ability to take care of themselves. And it's so important for us. Um, I do an exercise with women when I ask them to describe themselves in one word, and less than two out of 100 will put their own name on the list because we tip, typically see ourselves through the eyes of others. And so that's something... I had to learn because I am the worst at putting myself last. And so I, I realized that if I can be a better Sharon, then I can be a better mother, a better wife, a better businesswoman. And that's something that is so important because it's, we all have to learn that that's something that is definitely um, important to us in order to not only create success in our lives, but to be able to be confident and help others. Um, you know, you talk about the oxygen mask, put your own on before you um, put your children's on, and yeah. that's really important. I think one of my issues is a little bit different than that. I'm, as you're, you know, talking about this, I'm thinking uh, mine isn't so much um, that my, that I think about everybody else first, um, not that I don't think about my family and my children, but... I, I think there's an issue of trying to prove myself. I think that's come, uh, in my career anyway, uh, having grown up with brothers and surrounded by men, that uh, you know, I can do it. I don't really need help. I don't need to necessarily, you know, I can, I can prove that I can do this on my own, which is kind of a, it's, that's a little bit different than what you're saying. I, I understand. I actually suffer from that same thing. And part, part of it, 
for me what is was how I was raised within the public education system where you have to always do it on your own and I you know I'm a recovering straight A student but again it gives you that does instead of celebrating that you got a 98 on a test you're looking to figure out what two points you lost so you can argue about them and you know I think that builds in part of that uh, um, succeed at all costs and that that perfectionism that a lot of us are plagued with and the issue that we have to do is forgive ourselves and, and understand that, you know, and, and be willing to ask for help. But that's one thing that happens to, to a lot of us is we don't want to ever appear like we don't know something because that means a sign of weakness. You may, perfectionism seems to be coming up a lot in terms of, you know, I've been interviewing uh, women in business and, and, and in other fields who, have, who are successful at what they're doing, and they do talk about the fact that perfectionism, women and perfectionism, that holds us back in business. We feel like we can't ask for a raise unless it's the perfect time. We can't ask for, uh, you know, um, a, a better position in the company unless it's the perfect time. We have to be perfect. We have to have done whatever we somehow think we have to do in order to even ask for it, uh, for anything, um, particularly we're talking about some of these women in these uh, big corporate, uh, for, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Um, and that so that perfectionism, that, that is, is something that I guess we have to, to work on um, if we want to get ahead. Well, absolutely. And I think also... Um, as we see more and more women getting into the workforce, I mean, we, as I said, the 24, but we also, women now hold in excess of 50% of managerial positions. So we're seeing a real tipping point in changing in women in the workforce, and we're seeing women working together and men, more mentoring of women than ever before. And as that continues to escalate, you're going to start seeing that confidence level grow. And so I really believe that now is the time to embrace the fact that you have opportunities that you may never have had before and to be able to look at them and, and surround yourself with people that are going to support you and not just women. I mean, I love men. I think it's very important. Um, for instance, one of the things that people complain about is only 16.9% of board seats in America are, are occupied by women. And yet, I'm trying to change that dialogue and say, yes, we need more women at the table, but we now have the proof from a, a study released by Catalyst that says boards that have men and women working on them together outperform male-only boards by 66%. That's a startling statistic, and yet most people have never heard it. And so if we can start analyzing and, and celebrating that statistic instead of the negative one, those male-only corporate boards, they're interested in the bottom-line profits of their company. If they see, well, now, if I bring women to the table and it's men and women working together, you have the opportunity to use the best brain power of men and the best brain power of women to create wonderful results. And that's really, I think, what, what the future is going to hold. But it's those women of us who are quote-unquote perfectionists that have been driven and we have gotten those doors open. So instead of um, lamenting the fact that we're perfectionists because nobody can ever be perfect, but let's, let's celebrate the accomplishments that we've been made and start looking in the mirror and give ourselves a little bit of credit and say, okay, now I need to actually embrace the fact that I don't have to be perfect and I can still accomplish great things. Yeah, that's well said, and I, it, it, I'm thinking, you know, when, when that happens and we're able to do that in the workplace, the relationship between men and women 
is going to or is in the process of dramatically changing because if that changes in the workplace, it also changes in the home. It also changes in the relationship you have with your spouse or your partner. That's kind of a whole new social revolution. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, with the incredible number of blended families that are coming together, those in, the dynamics within the family are, are certainly in a huge state of flux. And you're seeing, you know, younger families where men are taking much more of the parenting responsibility and supporting and much more in a partnership with their wives. But I think it's also important to understand that women are, we're always going to be nurturers. It's in our biology. We are the caretakers. It's part of what happens when you give birth. It kind of those hormones go crazy. So, you know, let's accept the fact that we are the moms of the world. And when, when there's a crisis, it's women who stand up and take care of it. And so we need to be able to stand proud of the fact that we are women and we are great collaborators. We're great problem solvers. We're great nurturers. We, we have much more empathy than men. And so those talents are very, very needed, not just at the boardroom, but at, in the home. And when we combine that with, you know, men tend to be better at being decisive. They're more strategic thinkers. And so when you can bring those qualities together with problem-solving um, and empathy and collaboration that women bring to the table, it's amazing what we can achieve. What have you seen in the workplace in terms of the men when women begin to make these changes that we've been talking about for the past half hour? What happens to the men in the, in the work situation, in the boardroom? When, well, because, great question, because in the last, uh, in the afterword of the book, because the only man that I quote in the body of the book is Napoleon Hill himself, but in the afterword, I have probably a dozen men who I believe have supported me in my career, and I believe are true champions for women, and I think as women, we have a responsibility to celebrate those men who are champions for women, because if we start doing that, they're going to want to stay champions for women, and other men are going to want to become champions. Champions. And so I think it's, you know, everybody's changing. And so the men are going to have to re- rethink their, their male-only retreats, and, and that's happening as we speak. But, it, again, we can get so much more with sugar than with vinegar, and I think it's important for us to acknowledge those men who are very aware and very cognizant of the women who are successful on their teams and wanting to make sure they have every opportunity. And if we can start that dialogue and celebrate those men that we believe are true partners with women and want to see women to get ahead, you'll start seeing the other men follow suit. There, there are a lot of kudos to get from that. Um, we only have about a minute left, so let's talk about the websites that we can go to to continue uh, the dialogue or getting more information about your book and what you're doing. And um... Great. Well, I have the website thinkandgrowrichforwomen.com. There are special, uh, there's a way to get to Amazon or Barnes & Noble to buy the book, and I have special gifts for people who order the book and, um, and would welcome them to all come and join my website, and that, that redirects you to SharonLector.com, and Sharon, S-H-A-R-O-N, the last name is Lecter, L-E-C-H-T-E-R.com, and we right. really recommend get it. We've got book studies. We have all kinds of wonderful programs that go along with the book. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the show today. 
Thank you, Catherine. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, it was great. Very informative. Think and Grow Rich for Women, Sharon Lecter. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.